0: It makes your day-to-day easier and gives you the freedom to focus on what really matters, your future.
1: Grow your business without the grind in Slack. Visit slack.com to get started.
2: At the beginning of the day, a prisoner asking for parole had a two-thirds chance of success. And that chance of success declined to pretty much zero. There was a big spike up to about two-thirds again. And then uh, another decline everybody's going back to prison and then another spike up to about two-thirds declined again to the end of the day and when i ask people to make predictions about the spikes (laughs) most people get it right these judges they're hungry they need some food
0: Hey everybody, welcome to the show. This is Brave New Work, a podcast about reinventing our organizations and the search for a more adaptive and human way of working. I'm Erin Dignan and I'm joined by my refreshed co-host, Rodney Evans.
1: I mean, not that refreshed. Hi everyone.
0: Thanks I mean you were back. on a boat.
1: I was on a I was on a ship. <laughs>
0: Sorry, you're right, you're right, let's get it right. Mm -hmm. We are also joined today by Zoe Chance, a writer, teacher, researcher and climate philanthropist. Zoe teaches the most popular course at Yale School of Management and before that she managed a $200 million segment of Barbie. Her recent book is called Influence is Your Superpower, The Science of Winning Hearts, Sparking Change and Making Good Things Happen. Zoe, welcome to the show.
2: Thank you. It's great to talk with you, Aaron and Rodney.
0: On today's episode, we're going to talk about using the science of influence to inspire big change. But before we inspire anything, let's inspire each other with a check-in.
1: Let's do it. Okay. I picked a fresh check-in question for today. Uh, We begin all of our episodes like this to get present, to get connected, to share airtime, to get to know each other. And our question for today is this one. Think of a song that you absolutely hate, but are not totally sure why you hate it and tell us what that is and I'll go first to give you a second and then Aaron and then Zoe so a song that I hate reminded I was just on a cruise ship with my mom I saw the sync session band which was like the boat house band like at least once a day and I hate the song Hotel California so much (sighs) so much that I have practically a physical reaction to it And it was like in 50% of their sets and I would just have to leave the room because it's
0: so long (laughs) and
1: so bad and I cannot, and it's so old. Like, when am I going to stop hearing it? I hate it. I hate the Hotel California.
0: You're killing me right now. Why? (laughs) Like a top 10 song for me.
1: Like Um, in a good way? Yeah. Oh my God.
0: Love it. Love it. Uh, Play it. I play Ew. it. I, I adore it. But it's okay. Respect. Okay. Mm-hmm. Respect. For me, it's going to be 10th Avenue Freeze Out by Bruce Springsteen. What which, is that
1: song? I've never heard that song.
0: Don't worry about it. You're good. <laughs> like, I'm just going to save you both five minutes of your lives. Um, it's a song that bothers me. And at some level, it bothers me because it doesn't make sense but I'm Mm. sure it does make sense if I did the work to like study the lyrics and figure out what it's about. But when I just hear it, I'm just like, this is dumb. This doesn't make sense. And I, I want to throw it out. Also, it's very, it's very tinny. It's very brassy. It makes me anxious. I don't like it. So no 10th Avenue freeze out. I'm going to freeze out the freeze out. And I'm going to listen to the Eagles.
2: (laughs) Gross, Zoe, what about you? I think a lot of people must hate that 10th Avenue Freeze Out (laughs) since you and I have never heard of it, Rodney. Um, (laughs) It doesn't seem like a big problem. I really hate the song Eye of the Tiger. And (gasps) I feel like there's this whole genre of songs that should have a name that when they play, you're supposed to act like they're making you feel really good and Mm -hmm. pumped up. So maybe I do know why, but I've never thought about it. It's this pressure to be fake and excited and (laughs) i just want to (laughs) barf
0: there's like a whole such a
2: good answer
1: it's a whole genre and i hate the whole thing
0: they plan a lot at sporting events too right like it's it's kind of a thing where it's like it get hype
2: and sales conferences
0: it's like hype rock
2: yeah hype rock that's it hype that's it i'm so done with hype rock (laughs) (laughs) so good uh, it's so <gasps> rapport building for us to talk about things we hate. It's yeah.
0: Awesome. <laughs> I mean, that's I feel like that's a cornerstone of my relationship with Rodney. Mm, yeah.
2: It's we a mostly cornerstone hate
1: the same of things. All relationships, right? Yeah. It's important. Yeah. Yeah. What do it's you hate? Important.
0: Nobody really dates that way, but maybe you should. Like if you're out there on the circuit, it's just like, let's just start with what we hate and rattle. Rather it off than on the
2: apps being like, What do you yeah. love? Just like yeah. what do you yeah. hate the most?
0: Walks on the beach, we got it. But what do <laughs> no. you hate?
2: Listen, y'all, I had someone marry me because we connected over what we hated. And it was actually this one guy and his one research. So obviously I'm not going to say who this is, but <laughs> we were driving to a conference and in the car, we just spent this whole maybe two hour ride just hating on this guy who actually was our friend. <laughs> so it's <was> even, <laughs> even worse. Better. better. Even worse. Chef and kiss. Yeah. And he tells me that that's the moment that he knew that he was in love with me. <laughs> that's the best. And we had a child together after that. So this was deep.
0: (laughs) Someday the child can grow to hate that person as well.
2: (laughs) Yes, who is really nice. (laughs) This guy (laughs) is so nice. It's so bad. I'm so evil. I love it.
0: All right. Well, that seems like as good a place as any to jump into the meat today, which is the topic of how to influence and motivate change. And why would you want to influence and motivate change? Maybe because you hate something. So I guess let's start Let's start by talking about why you believe influence is a superpower that everyone is born with, because I was under the impression that only some of us had the influence mojo.
2: We're all influencing people all the time, whether it's intentional or unintentional. And you know that you're born with influence. You can make this leap if you look at a baby and if you've Ever been a parent. And you know that the second that you have a child, all of a sudden you are under the thumb of this eight or so pound little creature who is influencing (laughs) you night and day, nonstop, the second that they pop out. And this is how we survive. This is also how we as a species have managed to span the globe and take over, the stuff that we've taken over, is by influencing one another. And we think of influence, many of us, as this specific domain of transactional relationships, maybe in marketing or sales, and we don't think of it as broadly as it's really happening all the time in conversations and interactions with everyone that we're with. It's a superpower if we use it that way.
1: So exciting. (laughs) there's so many things that we want to ask you about but but one question that we know we want to hear about is how influence changes from early life to later like why why does our influence change how does it shift tell us a
2: little bit about that zoe as i describe this path probably you'll relate to this experience there are a few people who don't but most of us do where if you may not remember being a small child but All of us have been around small children, and they have no qualms about advocating for themselves Mm -hmm. and trying to get what they want to the extent that many of us are exhausted and annoyed. Not that they do it so gracefully, right? They're tiny, and they can come across as very greedy, right? So they'll tell you exactly what they want and they have no problem saying no. Uh, My daughter, by the way, so she's 14 now, when she was one, her favorite song was Rehab by Amy Winehouse because she says, no, no, no. (laughs) Her favorite word, great song, depressing in the context of how Amy Winehouse ended. But kids love to ask. They negotiate everything on earth right? TV, bedtimes, desserts, anything they want. But then through these well-intentioned people who love them, like parents and teachers, they train us to, they socialize us to be good and play nice and to be essentially playing small in the social realm of we can't be all demanding everything that we want all the time and we've got to all get along with each other in this world of limited resources, time and attention and all that. So we are supposed to learn how to say no to ourselves and just work really hard, develop good student habits and wait to be recognized and rewarded. So we go from being expansive and having no consciousness of how other people are perceiving us, maybe bull in a China shop kind of small children to being very quiet. I've heard girls paths as being described as when they're small, they're like dogs. And then at some point they shift and become more like cats. Hmm. And I don't know if some women or moms and dads of girls could relate to that. But what happens is then we go out into the world of work and We carry with us those good student habits where we are working hard, diligently, trying our best, and trying not to take up too much space because we don't want to be aggressive or demanding, and we're waiting to be recognized and rewarded, but everybody's just busy with their own stuff, so these parents and teachers who love us aren't serving us when they train us to play small and their gender dynamics in this and their class dynamics in this, where some of us are being pressed down more than others of us. And this is the ground where inequality gets fertilized and grown by some really well-intentioned people who love us.
0: Mm. Yeah. that I guess that connects to me with the, impression that I think a lot of people have around influence. Because to your point about it being gendered, and also just the different stigmas and and biases that we hold about how we should all show up, it feels to me like the word influence is often correlated with manipulation and coercion and just generally gross behavior, like trying to control other people. So how do you how do you separate influence as a kind of socially positive idea from manipulation and and getting people to do what you want i guess is it about the reasons why is it about the way you approach it how would you how do you parse those
2: you're right aaron that in my research i find most people when i ask them to describe influence or especially influence strategies or influence tactics they have those kinds of icky connotations and and oh my gosh influencer would be the worst although some people want to be that right
0: (laughs) everyone under 15
2: yes it's a career path now you can major in it (laughs) literally but a lot of us just go and we want to run the other way the words that we use determine how icky we think it is they're on the other end of the spectrum almost all of us want to be more influential and the idea of being or becoming influential is appealing So we do already have this idea of some kind of positive influence. We just don't call it an influence strategy. And we imagine that becoming influential is this thing that happens magically if we deserve it, kind of like – Girls are raised to imagine that if they are good and perfect and beautiful, all that they need to do is fall asleep, and then Prince Charming will come and kiss them awake and carry them off on a white horse into happily ever after. So we like the idea of having influence. We just don't like the idea of doing influence or doing what it takes to become influential. Mm -hmm.
1: Yeah. Why do you think? I, I think one of the one of the reasons for that is, is because it does have this sort of transactional flavor to it. Is influencing
2: transactional? Is it not? Why does it feel like it is? It can be transactional, right, Rodney? Like, and we are very attuned to and remember really, really well. Transactional influencers who suck at it and make yeah. us feel icky, yeah. and we regret having <laughs> let them influence us. Uh-huh. And yeah. this can include normal business kinds of transactions and icky salespeople, but also bad relationships. And also, if we've been conned by somebody or maybe in a bad relationship. Mm-hmm. So We're wired to remember bad experiences better than good experiences, and part of the reason we remember those bad experiences when we let some greedy or ill-intentioned person influence us is that a lot of times it's associated with our own guilt, too. Mm -hmm. It's not just that that person was an ass, but I was naive to have let that happen. Mm Mm-hmm. And these are very memorable. And it's also just the way that influence gets talked about in business and the kinds of books that get written on influence are largely focused on transactional sales and marketing situations. Totally. So that's why I felt there was an opening to have a book about influence that looked at kinds of strategies and science and ways that we can be developing our influence in relationships or starting relationships with people that we might like or care mm-hmm. about and could collaborate with and have the possibility of some kind of long-term relationship. Maybe we want it, maybe we don't, but we need to have other people feel good about us if they're going to want to be influenced by us in the future. So right. it's very small-minded just focus on influence as a transaction.
1: Yeah. You know, this makes me want to ask you about influencers specifically because, you know, all of us sort of have some associations with professional influencer influencers that are maybe not great. And at the same time, <laughs> um, like for example, I follow someone on Instagram. Her name is Grace Atwood, if people want to follow her. And <laughs> um, she reads like she reads so many books and I really, really enjoy her book recommendations and she makes them all the time. And she has like a really nice website with really good book reviews and blah, 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 blah. And I very much look at my relationship with this stranger on the internet as like, I will watch her read copy for a face cream in exchange for the fact that I get these really good book recommendations. And that seems like a positive transaction to me. And where I see that like sort of go wrong is people who are followers being like, this is my friend, now why is she trying to sell me face cream and misunderstanding right. what the dynamic is? So I don't know. That, what, what you were saying about the transactional nature of it just sparked for me, Like, I think in, in the realm where I am looking for information, I just appreciate that as a service and that the, the payment that I'm making is watching sponsored content, basically.
2: Thank you for making that distinction Rodney and it's absolutely right that there's nothing wrong with people doing transactions with each other yeah. when it's understood this is like you go buy a pair of socks and you don't need this person to be your best friend <laughs> right <laughs> right
0: just what socks
2: yeah. yeah you just Tell want socks thing. yeah and and this person who has great book recommendations needs to support themselves in some way and if sure. the way she finds to do it is to be explicit about that, I think that you're, you're homing in on the problem is when the difference or boundaries get muddied mm-hmm. and we're pretending that it's a relationship when it's really just a transaction. I think those are the situations when people feel bitter afterwards. Yeah. So I totally agree with you.
1: Yeah, that's cool.
0: So I guess I want to talk about other misconceptions then about influence, like When people think about it, are there other myths that people are walking around with, believing about influence and influencing other misperceptions that you think are worth highlighting?
2: There are a lot of myths that I describe at length in the first chapter of my book, as this is part of the reason that I wrote it. But one of the ones that comes up a lot early on when I'm working with or teaching people about influence is this idea that if I am advocating for myself, asking for stuff, or if I'm drawing boundaries, maybe saying no, that doing either of those things puts me at risk of having this other person not like me or think Mm. that I'm not nice or think that I'm greedy. And it's a huge misunderstanding that the thing that has people not like us or think that we're greedy or self, yeah, Not nice or selfish is the way that we ask or the way that we draw boundaries. So it's not that social judgments don't matter. Yeah, they do. There's a reason that when we get rejected by someone, the activation in our brain uses exactly the same pathways and mechanisms that physical pain does. Mm -hmm. We're wired for. For social pain and we don't want other people to experience that but the way that we treat each other determines how we feel rather than what we ask for or what we say no to and just this simple thing of asking for more and also saying no more often and allowing other people to ask us for what they want and to say no to what they don't want is the biggest fundamental shift that we can make as we start to practice going down this path of becoming more influential. And this is so simple, right? Influence is a science. It's really not rocket science. Mm -hmm. And I find it helpful to start as simply as that. And for all of you who are listening, I challenge you, if you're up for it, to start with something fun, which is a 24 hours of no challenge and for 24 hours you say no to everyone who asks you for anything or offers anything oh god <laughs> could you it. do it
0: that's yes. like my personal my whole nightmare
2: whole say say more about <laughs> this being your personal nightmare aaron
0: <laughs> i just have a really hard time cuz i'm so excited and i so want to be liked that i that i'm like let's do it let's do all the things i i'm excited to do all the things and i don't want to let people down so I do say no a lot more than I used to, but to say no to everything all day is just like, that'll be, that would be a personal stretch for me.
2: How does it affect your life to say yes so enthusiastically to so many things?
0: I am overcommitted. Yeah. And therefore and, I am trying to do too much and therefore I am letting some people down anyway.
2: And how does that feel?
0: Is this a therapy session now? <laughs> um It's, yeah, it's an interesting feeling because really it's, it's like so many things with human psychology about trading the present for the future or the future for the present. And, and if you're saying yes a lot, you're optimizing for pleasure in the moment, the pleasure of, of more, the pleasure of creativity, the pleasure of, of satisfying others at the expense of the future you and saying no is benefiting, you know, the the future you at the expense maybe of the present experience, at least until you can learn to be more comfortable with it. So yeah, no. it's a it's it's definitely um, understood but not practiced perfectly yeah, by and me. It's
2: interesting that you're taking it in that direction because I I haven't made this connection before. You just said it, but because the way we process dopamine and happiness is something that happens, and you guys know in the moment of expectation. When we find out that the good thing is going to happen, it's not when the good thing happens. We are saying yes to somebody, and they get that good feeling, and we get the good feeling (laughs) from giving them the good feeling. But actually, the only thing that can happen from that point on is that they have their expectations met or we disappoint them. Right. Hmm, That helps me understand my own guilt. And shame (laughs) about exactly the pattern that you're talking about, Aaron, as well.
0: (laughs) Well, there's room at the table
2: (laughs) for all of us. For all of us. Rodney, can I ask you, because we're talking about no, but I also brought up asking. Mm. When I talk to successful people about asking, and like we're good at if we've become successful. We had to do some asking, right? So Mm. I expect that there's some areas of your life that we feel comfortable about it. But everyone I've talked to so far has been able to find one area of their life that they're not comfortable about asking or advocating for themselves. Mm. And um, do you have something that pops into your mind for you that might be that? Yes, probably
1: more than one thing. I'm trying to think of something that's patterned. I think definitely there have been many moments and still are present moments that are compensation related.
2: Mm. Oh, yeah
1: for money for ourselves, money for ourselves. Um, And a lot of my, a lot of my challenges around it, like, you know, come from similar places to probably other people's and are, you know, typical in terms of how women are socialized and, you know, growing up in a family where it was very like work ethic will be rewarded. You shouldn't have to ask. Like that was like definitely a narrative. And now as I'm older and like very financially secure for a variety of reasons, now there's a different kind of guilt, which is like, I don't need it as much as other people so I shouldn't so it's but it all comes from the same place of just like not wanting to and then conjuring a narrative for why not to
2: You have just hit on two of the big reasons that we have inequality between people who are asking and advocating them for themselves, and it's gender and socioeconomic class. So you mm-hmm. described <laughs> yourself as now being financially stable, secure. Yes. So, so you grew up, I guess, from a family who didn't historically have a lot of money. Is that right?
1: It was very, very up and down. Up and down. Yeah. Gotcha. So, like, you know, I, I grew up in a very like wealthy environment, but my family's personal finances were like pretty feast or famine. Um, So my dad had very big jobs and then also was unemployed at times because his behavior was so erratic. So I think like I I had a mentality of financial insecurity, even though there was never like, we were never actually lacking anything fundamental. There was always like a lot of risk around money.
2: That makes a lot of sense that you would internalize this idea that you need to be absolutely sure to right. work hard so right. that you can have some stability. And I can relate to that because I grew up in a family that was poor, like single mom, and we were below the poverty line for a while. And my sister and mom and I lived in one bedroom apartment. My mom slept on the couch, but we she had moved us to a really good school district. And so my friends' families were wealthy and had Drove jaguars, had swimming pools and sailboats and went on safaris and things like that. And people who have grown up with definitely with financial scarcity and probably also with financial instability, but I don't know if that specifically has been studied, tend to learn themselves or have their parents teach them Mm self-reliance. And totally end up working so hard and figuring that that's the path forward. There's this really great study by a sociologist named Jessica Calarco who was doing research in a middle school. Maybe it was more than one. It was multiple classrooms over the course of a whole year Mm. where she observed students and teachers to see which students were asking for help or flexibility or extra time or leniency to get out of punishments and which students were teachers saying yes to.
1: Mm-hmm.
2: And she found it, – it's not surprising. She had data on their socioeconomic background. It's not surprising that the middle-class students were asking more than mm-hmm. often than the kids from working-class families. But I was really surprised at how huge that gap was. It was that the kids from middle-class families were seven times more likely to ask for help or any Whoa. of these other things. It's huge. And so then she looked at who were the teachers saying yes to, and the teachers are trying to say yes to everybody. The teachers are just really Mm. nice. The teachers Mm -hmm. were not discriminating. And then she did interviews with the parents of these kids, and she found kids who were growing up in these working-class households were being taught by their parents to work hard and prove themselves. And you might have to work two or three times as hard as some other kid. Yeah. Because, and these are such well intentioned parents, and these are kids who are trying so hard to do what they're supposed to do. But then the kids from the middle class families were getting messages from their parents that they needed to negotiate because privilege is partly negotiated. Mm -hmm. So we have these. Kids who are working hard to try to do the right thing. Parents who are working hard to teach their kids what it takes to do well. Teachers who are working hard to do the right thing and be nice. And it's this very strange and toxic, sad, unequal combination of all these really good people Mm -hmm. building inequality. And then we have inequality from something in every case that's well-intentioned and beautiful. And this is exactly the pattern that I see with leaders who are the kindest, nicest, best-intentioned people. They're like those teachers
1: mm-hmm. because they are
2: reactively generous mm-hmm.
1: and they're trying
2: to say yes to the employees who come and ask for compensation, flexibility, time, resources, headcount. They're trying to help people, right? but they're not looking at who wasn't asking. So mm-hmm. it's the best kindest leaders who are actively contributing to inequality that's so interesting (laughs) it makes so much sense yeah that's wild right so so all of us whether we're parents in any leadership role that we're in so even in a family definitely in a company in Any role where you have something that people are coming and asking you for, we need to step back and think about who didn't step forward to ask. Maybe they didn't know that they could. Maybe they didn't feel comfortable because people with more privilege are more comfortable asking. Mm -hmm. People who feel less privileged are less comfortable, but also just less likely to know that they can. And also, we should be asking ourselves, should there be a policy here? that makes Mm -hmm. it really clear what's possible and what's Mm -hmm. not possible so that I don't have to be making that decision every single time who should get that extra flexibility, resource, et cetera. I was teaching a group of leaders last week where one of them was, we had a similar kind of conversation and one of them was saying, oh my God, this is happening to me right now where I have an employee who's coming back from maternity leave And she's a wreck. She is exhausted, not sleeping, new baby, really hard. And she asked me if she could take the first month working from home before she comes back to the office. And I said, yes, because of course I want to help her out and I don't want her to leave. Right. And then the two other employees who most recently took maternity leave were like, what the hell? Right. What about us? Sure. And like, I don't, (laughs) let me just bounce this back to you because I didn't have great advice Mm. except to say, you know, okay, yes, in general, think about policy. In general, think about other people who could have asked, but since this is kind of water under the bridge for these two people, I don't know. What would you suggest?
0: Mm. (laughs) It's a governance challenge.
1: It is challenging. I mean, I, I I think to the extent that the two other people who asked
2: were like, They they didn't ask. No, they wished that they had asked for that flexibility, but they did ask, what the hell? Right? How can you give that to her and not to us? Yes. Yes. So
1: I I feel like at that point, if I were in that leader's shoes, I think there are three things that I would do. One is I would be like, okay, you know. (laughs) things change over time and evolve and clearly we need to have a default for this rather than me using my judgment in the moment which is faulty (laughs) two is maybe there's only two things I had a third but it's gone now two is um, I think I would say to those other two parents I think I would acknowledge that there was unfairness there and I would be like okay we are where we are right now is there anything that I can do now? And like, you know, we can't, obviously we can't go back in time. And, you know, is there another type of flexibility that you would propose that would serve you in this moment of your parenting journey since I flubbed it in the past moment?
2: And you sound like a great manager and I would love to work with you. (laughs) And then for me, as someone who has a different issue in my life, Mm. I would also be coming to you and saying like, so why do these people who had that kind of problem get this extra special flexibility where I have a different kind of problem, but does that mean less? Right. Mm. Like like we've seen yes. a lot of this problem with employers and great, wonderful managers trying to give extra flexibility, help, leniency, time off and things to people who get COVID. But then all of these other people get sick with all of these other different things. Yep. Yeah.
0: yeah you really get very fast into a conversation about like equity and what does it mean to try to strive for fairness in governance? And, and I, don't. Rodney,
2: I love how you framed it, just acknowledging that there's been unfairness here. And this is where we are now. And mm-hmm. what can we do from here?
1: Yeah. And I think that to your point about future asks, because that is going to happen, right? And when we see that there is an appetite for our managers to like hear us and accommodate our needs. Um, I think a lot of the time, the reason managers don't do that is because they're worried about floodgates opening. And I would actually take the opposing view, which is let the floodgates open, understand that for some period of time, it's going to be really messy because we're hearing requests from people that we haven't maybe historically heard or had a way to process or had a forum for. And then are there defaults or heuristics that could serve lots of people with lots of different kinds of issues like I'm never a huge fan of like you know we have one kind of policy for taking care of children we have one kind of policy for taking care of sick parents and we have one kind of policy you know I, it's like wh- what kind of <laughs> flexibility could we propose as a team that would serve a lot of us who have uh, circumstances outside of work that require our attention and maybe that looks like us all covering each other so that each of us can leave early one day a week and deal with our nanny or our doctor or our mom or whatever. Or maybe it means that we have some kind of a sabbatical policy. Or, I I mean, I don't know. Obviously, it, it varies by organization and culture. But to me, what's interesting about a situation like that is not trying to triage every single request or data point and instead looking at it as a body of data and saying, is there one agreement or one default that could serve most of us or most of our situations that we could sign up for.
2: Yeah. And to have at the very least a process that's the process that people (laughs) expect and maybe they've contributed to creating the process if this is at something like a team level with one manager, right? But at the very least, they understand what the process will be. And, And there probably will always be circumstances where somebody just has a bigger emergency than most people have in most situations and they do need some extra help or flexibility but we can have those be the exception instead of the norm that we have just like you said these this mosaic of policies where we especially give a lot of extra flexibility to somebody like parents and <laughs> we mm-hmm. make lots of people angry mhm yeah Totally.
0: All right. I'm going to, I'm going to pull us back up out of the org design weeds then and ask a question about a concept that you share that I think is really fascinating, which is the analogy of the gator and the judge and, and what that has to do with influence. So can you unpack that for me and us?
2: Sure thing, Aaron. Thank you. The analogy of the gator and the judge is for anyone who's familiar with behavioral economics, this is really system one and system two. Right. So there is a name for it. It is not my framework, but I use a different, stickier, more tractable name for it being Alligator and the Judge, and I'll explain why. And it has to do with the mental processes that it's describing how it works. and And I'll also explain, which doesn't, normally get discussed or even thought about in behavioral economics, how these two work together in interpersonal influence. The idea here is that there are these two systems in our mind that work together, sometimes in collaboration and sometimes in conflict, to determine 100% of our decisions and behavior. And this first piece technically system one, but it's the analogy of the gator, is vastly more powerful and largely unconscious. Mm. If you can picture it like an alligator lurking below the surface of your conscious awareness, and it's constantly scanning the environment for opportunities and threats. Mm. And what it's particularly attuned to is sensory information. It is very, very efficient it's, it has evolved for even maximum efficiency. When it takes action, it's so quick. You can hardly see it move. And alligators might snap something up. You could think of this being like a snap judgment. Mm-hmm. Our emotions are housed here, direct experience, visceral reactions. And this is also where our habits belong An alligator is able to move so quickly and with such great precision because it's had 38 million years of evolution and a lot, a lot of practice. (laughs) Its brain is the size of a walnut. Its body can be up to a thousand pounds and they're so efficient that they can go up to three years without eating anything at all. I find that mind blowing. Wow.
1: That's bananas.
2: It's so weird, right? Right. And what that means behaviorally is that although it is constantly scanning for opportunities and threats, its reaction to all of the stimuli in the world almost all the time is nothing. Alligators look incredibly lazy. And this is a great analogy for what's likely to happen when you are the stimuli and you're trying to influence someone to do something. Right. Mm. It's very hard to get them to move off of the status quo or what they're currently doing or to get them to take any action or even to notice and pay conscious attention to you and your great idea. Mm -hmm. So this is the alligator part. The other piece of this is the conscious part that is much less powerful and plays a much smaller role in determining our decisions and behavior, but because it's our conscious part, it seems like this is everything. This one, technically system two, I use the analogy of a human judge, is like a judge in a courtroom where it's consciously, effortfully, deliberately, carefully, and with a lot of time and, yeah, hard work, trying to make rational, objective, right decisions. However, it's like a human judge and not like an algorithm because it's biased. And it's biased primarily by the preferences, habits, biases, fears, and snap judgments the gator. The gator is the gatekeeper to the judge. And this is all very abstract, even though I use these analogies to make it concrete. Um, maybe if I share a study mm. to flesh it out, this will help listeners to get what I'm talking about. This is a study with actual judges to show that the power of the gator brain with actual judges, when researchers measured. Time of day and the parole decisions of parole boards making—this was 1,100 parole decisions. It happened to be in Israel. I don't think that this matters. That part matters. What they found was a strong pattern where at the beginning of the day, a prisoner asking for parole had a two-thirds chance of success getting to go back home to their family. And that chance of success declined. To pretty much zero. There was a big spike up to about two thirds again. And then uh, another decline. Everybody's going back to prison. And then another spike up to about two thirds, declined again uh, to the end of the day. And when I ask people to make predictions about the spikes, <laughs> most people get it right. These judges needed They're a break. Hungry. They need to see yeah. food. They were hungry or they were hangry.
0: Exactly. Because
2: they're human. And what happens is when we're making difficult decisions, we're using a lot of that effortful, costly bandwidth. It takes a lot of willpower to be focused on this task. And... It's We get depleted and we get fatigued, people call it in research, decision fatigue, but it's anything that takes a lot of conscious attention, even sitting through a class and doing nothing, but listening. Listening is very fatiguing because you're focusing your conscious attention. And when you don't have much of that finite resource left, what you have is just the automatic processes of the gator and the gator tends to be doing the thing that's easy conservation of resources and in this case the easy decision is that person did something that made them go to prison Mm -hmm. that was bad so they should probably stay Mm. it's a much harder decision to weigh the pros and cons and say i think it's reasonable for this person to go free
1: so fascinating (laughs) so fascinating Okay, so we got to hear about the gator and the judge, which is a concept that we love. The other concept that I have learned from you, Zoe, is that of the magic question, which is something that I use all the time. And I will tell you, it probably has a hit rate of about 9 out of 10. Uh, So it truly is, I can attest to the magic of the magic question. So will you tell us about it and why it works so phenomenally well? Absolutely.
2: And I'm so excited that you use the magic question freely and pervasively. Mm -hmm. I love to share this really simple question because it is so powerful. It's so often successful and it's so easy. And like the other strategies that I teach, it feels good on both sides as long as you have a little bit of rapport. And because you know this is a question that other people will feel good or at least fine. To have you ask, you're more likely to do it. Mm. And we can come back to the gator judge thing and how this works in a moment. But I think that this will be helpful if I share a concrete story and we will take the domain of work to illustrate how the magic question functions. And this is a story from one of the people who was leading the company that I interned in when I was an MBA student doing marketing in this medical device company called Guidant. They had the good problem that demand was outstripping supply for their new stent system, and they had to ramp up production. And that meant that Ginger Graham, who was number two person to the CEO, needed to come to the production employees and ask them to work overtime three shifts a day between Thanksgiving and Christmas in the six-week period at the end of the year when nobody wants to work overtime. and. Of course she has to pay them, right? She's not going to she can't force them to come in. But what she understood is that when all you're using is an incentive to influence somebody, first of all they can feel coerced and mm-hmm. they can even feel like a slave. And secondly, as soon as that incentive goes away, there's no motivation or no positive vibes. You have nothing in the account left over. So Even if you can influence somebody to come in by paying them money, what you really want is for them to want to say yes. And this is true of all influence. So she asked them the magic question. And the magic question is simply, what would it take? She asked, what would it take for you to feel good about coming in and working these extra shifts at the end of the year? And of course, I'm going to pay you. They said, okay, let us talk to each other they conferenced and they came back to her and they said listen gender yeah you'll pay us we'll come in but here's what it will take to have us feel good about it first of all we take the bus and the bus doesn't run at night so we need cab fare she's an executive she has no idea about buses they said we're hungry and we like pizza (laughs) okay great And they told her, you know, what we're really stressed about is getting our Christmas presents wrapped. So if you could hire a Christmas present wrapper, that (laughs) would be super helpful. Amazing. So she does these things. She pays the money. Production hits record levels. Everyone got, I think it was a 30% bonus. And then the important piece here is that their engagement continues to be high after the crunch period is over and after she's given them the pile of money. Mm -hmm. They feel respected by This perspective and this question, the way she's approaching it. And she's opened up this topic by letting them know she's not just trying to influence them in this transactional way. She also is open to influence. This is a big piece of becoming influential, is being open to other people's influence in a mutual process. And she's shifted the dynamic of what could feel like pressure Where gator, we haven't talked about this yet, but the gator has a natural threat response when somebody is trying to influence us. Mm. It says, you don't tell me what to do. You're not the boss of me, even if they are literally the boss of you. And when you approach them with respect and openness in this way, what would it take? You get to shift them from resistance to pressure to collaborative problem solving, which is enjoyable. And so often you get answers you could never have anticipated, like about the Christmas present wrapper, right? You mm-hmm. would have no idea. I'm sure. And, yeah. right, and then the last, maybe most important piece of the magic question is that when you ask this question, if they can give you an answer, which happens more often than you would think, not always, it's not a magic wand, but when they give you this trail of breadcrumbs that can be followed What they have also implicitly committed to by laying out the breadcrumbs is saying, I will support that outcome when I told you this is what it would take. And so in this case, it's not just that they received the things that they wanted, but they had told her, these are the things that we want. In order to feel good about this. And so they feel respected by her. And then they've said, okay, we're going to feel good about this. And we do. We feel good about this. Engagement continues to be high. Magic question. You can use it in your professional life, your personal life. You can use this repeatedly even with people. You've taught the magic question to, like my students and my daughter. They'll come and use the magic question on me or vice (laughs) versa. And we'll be like, ah, the magic question again. But because it's respectful and collaborative, It's still effective. And it's not like they're like, oh, you're trying to manipulate me. They're just kind of laughing. You can use it with strangers in important situations, small situations. You can use this in lieu of giving critical feedback. And because of that threat response, giving critical feedback, of course, is one of the most fraught influence situations we can have. So instead of saying, here's how you suck and here's what you need to do about (laughs) it— You can ask, hey, what would it take to shift this dynamic, or what would it take to have a different outcome, and leave it up to the other person to let you know, here's what they need, or here's what their obstacles are, or here's what they're willing to commit to. And what you've done is you've allowed them to save face. Mm -hmm. So you've set the table for a productive and collaborative collegial relationship rather than them hating you for hating on them. So magic question, what would it take two more things just to have you listeners really go out and use this? Two of the mid-level managers who've come through workshops with me and went and used this question to change policies in their organizations are Malum from from Turner Networks, who's a strategy director, used the magic question in a series of conversations to get an internship program funded so that people from underrepresented minorities could take internships at Turner Networks. And they didn't just have free internships that only people who came from privileged backgrounds nice. could take advantage of. Amazing. That I saw him at the beginning of the summer and he told me with great elation, they had just graduated their 24th intern, which was awesome. <laughs> and another Manager. These are people who don't have the power to set policies, right? Mm-hmm. A strategy director, she's a senior director at the New York Times named Dalit. She asked in a series of conversations, what would it take to have the New York Times offer as a health benefit employees to be able to freeze their eggs or sperm if they wanted to take control of their reproductive future there was no media company at least in the united states that offered that health benefit and it took a year but the new york times then became the first company to offer it so magic question can upend your life in the best possible way go out and ask it what would it take
0: that uh, is an incredible, incredible place to to bring things to a close, and I love, I love how the magic question turns influence from, uh, how do I get you to do what I want game into a how do we arrive at something that we both want. So that is, uh, super super powerful. Um, Zoe, where can our listeners find out more about you and your influential work?
2: Mm, thank you. They can come to zoechance.com or. You're also welcome, listeners, to connect with me on LinkedIn, and you can reach out to me. You can find out about my book, Influences Your Superpower. You can get it at most bookstores and libraries. And also, if you decide that you wanted to get a copy of this book, you are helping to mitigate the climate crisis because I'm donating half of my profits from the book to 350.org and other groups working on the climate crisis. So thank you for that.
1: Amazing. Everyone go buy this book. It's a really, <laughs> really, really good one. And we don't say that to all the authors. Uh, Zoe, thank
2: you so much for joining us today. Rodney and Aaron, you all are so fun to talk to. I really appreciate it. I've enjoyed this conversation a lot. Thank you.
0: All right. Nailed it. A uh, quick tip of the hat to Taylor Marvin for making the three of us sound good today and stitching this all together. Brave New Work is produced by The Ready where we help organizations around the world change the way they work and maybe do a little influence while they're at it. Uh, get in touch with us by emailing podcast at the ready.com. And as for you, thanks for listening. Now go change something.